You know, worrying never cures anything. And unfortunately, all of us are going to die at some point. And therefore, if something's under control and I'm saying that, look, this is looking really good and all the evidence suggests that if your disease is this under control for that long, the likelihood is you may have a full lifespan. Well, then you need to get out and enjoy life. Hello again, you're very welcome to the Insights Podcast. I'm delighted to be joined by one of Ireland's busiest and best-known cancer specialists, consultant medical oncologist Professor Janice Walsh of St Vincent Hospital. She also teaches students from Trinity and UCD. And Janice, it's great to have you here. I went onto the Irish Cancer Society website last night and in alphabetical order, it lists some of the main ones, bowel cancer, brain cancer, breast cancer, cervical, leukaemia, lymphoma or blood cancer, liver, lung, ovarian, prostate cancer, skin cancer and testicular cancer. And then it goes on to say there are 200 different types of cancer. No wonder you're busy. And it's also an area in which there's a lot of news that's really good of recent times, thanks in large measure to research that you and colleagues have been conducted. But start, Janice, if you would, by telling me about a typical day in your life. Sean, lovely to see you. The day is busy. I suppose four of my five standard working days are kind of clinical. So that involves patient management. So I'm in early, getting ready for the day. So early usually is about 7am. I work better in the morning. Then I may be seeing new patients at that time and they have allocated slots. And then I will move after I've seen those new people into a day ward situation where we will round on people who are receiving treatment. And that treatment is usually chemotherapy or biological therapies. And the objective of those treatments is to make sure that we give them the best chance of one cure, being cured of that disease or living as long as we can. So in terms of that daily management, we're kind of reviewing toxicity related to treatment, how they tolerate it? Do they have any new symptoms that we are concerned about? And that takes a good chunk of the day. So most of our working day is involved in the review of those day ward patients and also seeing new people who are, have maybe never met me before. At any given time, typically, how many patients would you have on your book, so to speak, or in your portfolio? It is difficult to assess. I mean, I was thinking yesterday I had 60 people going through the day ward for treatment. On our average clinic day, we may have 60 people, but of course, I'm not by myself. I'm accompanied by many of my talented juniors. And I also have really good nursing staff which work in different roles that help review those patients. But it is, the numbers are big. You don't actually do surgery yourself, is that right? No, I'm not a surgeon. So my job is the administration of chemotherapy and biological therapies. So these are ones that are known as more targeted therapies and also tablet form, such as anti-hormonal therapy. So no, I don't do any surgery, but I work very closely with surgeons. And you concentrate mainly, I think, on breast cancer, though previously you did a fair amount of lung cancer treatment as well. Yeah, so when I came back from the States in 2006, my original job was in Tally University Hospital with NACE General Hospital. And at that time, I was doing breast cancer and lung cancer, although breast cancer had been my focus when I was in the States. And then by the time 2008 came, the rumblings of the cancer centres were starting. So we were negotiating a move to one of the eight cancer centres at that time. And I moved to Vincent's University Hospital, which in itself was 
phenomenal for me because I'd moved from a situation where we had about 150 breast cancers a year in Tala to 800 now in Vincent's a year. You obviously moved fast career-wise. Uh, you were one of the, or the youngest consultant in the country at one point, were you? I mean, at the time I was. I was 32 when I was appointed. I moved to the States when I was 29. Did a three-year fellowship in the cancer, National Cancer Institute, which was a phenomenal experience. But at that time, yeah, I was young. So I did a lot of learning here. Before we get into a little more detail about that, I want you to tell me, Janice, how did you get into medicine? What drew you into it in the first place? Yeah, so I suppose my original in influence would be my dad. He was a general practitioner. I always say if anything was going to put you off medicine, it would be growing up with a single practitioner. I mean, we moved from Galway to Leitrim when I was two and he he had obtained a GMS list up there. A very isolated place, a very busy place. He had a tremendous work ethic. So certainly that's something I would say I would have developed. But he would have been my main focus. I mean, there was no question that I would always have been drawn to the whole area of healthcare and helping people. But I knew by 12 that I think medicine was what I was going to do. And had you moved back to Galway at that stage then? Moved back when I was 11 and then moved into town to go to secondary school and went to college in UCG. Yeah. And you're not the only one in your family to do medicine, is that right? No, my brother went in as well. There's five of us. I suppose it's a, 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 well, one couldn't say a funny story, but a difficult story in that he was an architect. My brother, he was working in Norman Foster and then he was involved in the tube bombing um, in London in 2005. And that had happened a very short time after my father had died from gastric cancer, stomach cancer at 56. So he was in the carriage with the bomber. He had sustained a lot of injuries, but thankfully was not killed, as many people were on that day. I I remember that very well. 2005, we actually did a programme on the news at one on the anniversary of it. It was a it was a huge story. And, And your brother actually, he survived that. He was. I mean, it's. It's shocking. You know, we got a depiction from the London Metropolitan Police of the carriage because I always thought in my head that he was on the other side of the carriage. But when you look at the depiction of the carriage, the bomber was in purple. On the other side of the perspex screen was my brother and they had put all the people who died in red. So we had the bomber in purple, all the people around the bomber in red. And there's my brother behind the perspex screen in grey because he had survived. So we always feel that maybe my father, who, as I said, had died from a young age, maybe was protecting him at that time. But he sustained injuries. But I think at that time he did a re-evaluation of things. He had received some money from the Red Cross and the government for rehabilitation, went back, used that money to do medical school and now is navigating his way through and is potentially going to be a rheumatologist and really a tremendous individual. A complete change of career for him. Yeah, so a complete change of career I mean, there's no, I can't see any link whatsoever. He's a very arty individual. I think he's going to be a different type of doctor. I think William Walsh is somebody that we are going to identify in some way. I hope that he's going to come back to Ireland. All of his work has been in the UK so far, but yeah, complete sea change. And I suppose when he asked me, should I do this, Janice, I was kind of shocked because even thinking at that time, he was mid-twenties, starting off on that journey. And it's such a long journey. I thought he was daft, to be honest, that, you know, he's now 42 years of age. He's still a junior doctor. Now in the UK, you progress quicker. He'll be a consultant probably in about two years. But it's certainly not easy doing night duty when you are 42 and being up all night. 
it's there's a, clearly an element of a calling that somehow you know intervened or at least became aware or or became apparent at that stage. I think so, and probably my father being sick and navigating cancer therapy was probably an influence in terms of being in and out of hospitals around that time too. And were you yourself drawn towards cancer speciality as a result of your dad's illness, the one that? killed him at a very young age. No, it pre- it preceded that. You know, I was in doing the Western medical schemes after I qualified. And for personal reasons, I needed to get to Dublin at that time. So the way that I got into oncology was I threw my hat in the ring for an SHO job, which is a, a senior house officer, but a very junior doctor in oncology and kidney medicine and endocrinology, which is diabetes, thyroid disease. And went up, my first interview I did it was in the matter, met probably the most influential person that has been in my career so far, Des Carney, who would be one of the giants of oncology services in Ireland and just got into it and loved it. And usually it's a conversation stopper, right, for my friends. They're like, Janice, who wants to do that? I mean, what kind of conversations are you having on the average day? But truthfully, It is an area like no other in medicine. The degree of progress, I mean, there's data coming out on a weekly basis that has having an impact in terms of the types of drugs that we are developing, the type of survival rates that we are seeing. And of course, the second thing is the relationships that you develop, right? I mean, I deal with two main cohorts of people. One, those that maybe have had surgery and I'm now giving them treatment with view to curative intent. So hopefully they're never going to see this disease again. And then I have a second group of patients who have what's called stage four disease or metastatic disease or have, by definition, incurable disease. And what I'm trying to do then is to control that disease for as long as I can. So. The relationships you develop are very different within those two different patient groups. And I suppose that is something that I've always been drawn to. Just love people. And is it easy? It sounds like it's relatively easy for you to identify and to relate to your patients, perhaps because you, you, like many of them, are a mother of young children. Exactly. And I suppose from a breast cancer perspective, which would be my main area now, Um, A significant cohort of those that are really in trouble are potentially my young women and my young mothers. So, you know, I always say when you are talking to the women and you're talking about the objectives of treatment and you're asking for questions at the end, all they want to know is that they're going to be there for their children. And of course, we know that that's incredibly important. We know from international research that the loss of your mother has a detrimental effect on your development. Unless, of course, you have a very strong male character. So how do you manage then, given that you identify with so many of your patients, how do you manage to remain detached? Because if you're not detached, you're perhaps of less use to them. Uh, True. So I I think of it less as detached, not being detached, but rather creating boundaries. Because from their point of view, they do not want their doctor crying with them over the type of disease they have. What they want is hope. They want someone to tell them that one, this is going to be okay, And number two, if it's not going to be okay, we're going to get every drug that we can to make you live for as long as we can. And very often nobody knows how long that will be. I suppose in terms of how I achieved that, that is something that you learn over your career. It's hard to impart that information to your juniors straight on. But there's no question that self-care is a very important part of that. So I suppose I'm very good in that regard. And of course, I've learned by default over time. I exercise regularly. 
So that works off the agitation. I pay for what's called a work therapist. That is somebody I've been seeing for about 10 years. They've changed over time. They are good because when I am feeling things, you know, those boundaries are breaking down as a result of feeling extremely upset about the impact or the journey that somebody's having. It is important that I'm able to talk that out, understand what those problems are. So that is something I suppose I would always have felt that the HSC or certainly the healthcare system should be trying to promote. It's a very interesting uh, approach that you take and clearly you feel the need to have somebody that you can, if you like, unload to uh, or, or vent to because of the, the stress that's obviously going with the job. And and how could it not be, Sean? I mean, every week I'm telling somebody that one, their cancer has progressed, there's new areas that the treatment is not working, that we need to change that treatment or that I'm saying that, look, there's nothing further I can do do at this point. I've done everything that I can and I'm managing the anxiety that those people have. So I'm obviously seeing people devastated, crying, you know, have a multitude of emotions. So you cannot be but affected by those things. And I suppose there's always people then that will mirror your own situation, that I maybe have kids the same age as them, that I understand that if I had to leave mine, that that would just be the worst thing ever. And that's, of course, married with the fact that I need to be upright for them. I need to be able to carry out that journey and help them manage it to the end. So a work therapist for me is essential. Do you get a sense, though, that very often when you are giving that final piece of of news that in many ways the patients themselves would realise this is this is where it is before you even tell them. Yeah, I think it's very variable because for some people that end comes very quickly and that put, totally pulls the rug out from underneath them. And for others that have navigated a journey maybe for two years, three years, four years, they have navigated the possibility that as things get worse, that this is not going to improve. Now, obviously, there's a significant personality element of that because some people decide that they are never going to engage in the fact that this could possibly be outcome death and others may have anticipated that from the very start. So you're managing people with different expectations, different reactions to that. But but that varies person to person. And I suppose with the type of relationships that I have with people, you become very skilled at understanding what people want to know and what they don't want to know. One of your patients uh, was our colleague here, our much loved colleague, uh, Keelan Shanley, and you took part in a documentary that she and other colleagues made about her life. And sadly, she left us about just almost um, four years ago now, next February. Uh, And she was somebody who who knew that you were basically at the end. uh, And I suppose, you know, that was something that was done very publicly, at least the way she spoke about it and the way you did too. Yeah, I mean, she was an extraordinary woman. I suppose our relationship was different than maybe others in that we started off with a patient-doctor relationship. When I met Keelan, and she's been very public about this, so I'm not breaking any confidentiality, is that she was only young in her early 40s. When she was diagnosed with her breast cancer, her only focus was staying around for Ben and Lucy. She received curative therapy. She was just infinitely inquisitive. 
once she started to hear information regarding the fact that cancers were increasing, that there were lifestyle factors that could be targeted in terms of patient outcome, her whole thing for me was, Janice, we need to talk about this. We need to get this information out there. So I suppose our relationship moved from one of patient doctor to then one moving through the media, doing communication about different things. Um, I always say that if, if I wasn't her doctor, I'd like to think we would have been friends. I really liked her. She was an extraordinary woman, as I said, extremely um, inquisitive, razor sharp, but also kind, Just kind, generous. Everyone loved her. And, and being a scientist as well, uh, through her studies, she would have been really keen. And she did. I think she went to America several times. And at the end of the day, the illness got so advanced that that was an option that was closed off. but And that was always the challenge with Keelan because, you know, when I meet people with stage four incurable cancer, for me, I'm working on step one in terms of their treatment, but I'm thinking about step two and step three. But they don't know that. But Keelan, with her science background, she had already investigated two and three. So she was moving along with me at the same rate. And, and we were investigating so many different treatment options. She ended up going out to the NCI where I did my fellowship because she was an American citizen. So she had access to that to gain access to this cutting edge therapy that was being developed for breast cancer at the time. Unfortunately, she wasn't um, eligible for that for sequences that happened within her disease at that time. But she was always four steps ahead. You mentioned a few moments ago uh, that some people they just don't want to engage. I recall a, a relative of mine getting on in years and uh, he went to a consultation and he was told in some detail about the cancer that he'd had. And after that consultation, he came out of the room and he turned to his wife and said, well, thank God I don't have cancer anyway. So, I mean, how big an issue is denial? Huge. But sometimes it's a survival mechanism for people. I always think that if you have an incurable cancer and if you can put your faith in the doctor that you have and just say, well, look, she's going to she's going to work on this. She's going to make me do better. She's going to get every treatment she can and close your brain off to the possibility that you may have more lung disease or more liver disease or more bone disease and only deal with that at the time that your um, scans are available. That is a gift. Because we have people who would be on treatment that has been under control for five or six years and still their anxiety related to waiting for their next scan is exactly the same like it was in year one. Denial is a very helpful thing sometimes. But if if it's denial, that's one thing. But if what about the other end of that scale, perhaps defeatism? Oh, my God, look, you know, the end is near. No matter what I do, no matter what she can do, you know, that's it. I'm bunched. Yeah, and that's difficult. And I'll tell you, it's more difficult for those who live with that person as opposed to me, because from my point of view, I'm just going to still continue to do whatever I can to keep that disease under control. And we can be very successful in that regard. But if you're living then with somebody who, despite the fact that they're actually doing fine, but they're their mood is not able to get there. That is something that, like as families, that can be a significant trauma. So can there be an overlap then between a, a cancer illness and a mental illness? Oh, very significant, as you can imagine, because I think something like cancer, you know, it's challenged our mortality. For the first time, we're faced with the fact that we might not be here for long. Um, so for some people, that causes increased anxiety. For some people, it causes a reduction in their mood. And as you know, we have a very significant instance of mental health issues anyway. So therefore, if I already have a baseline problem and then I'm given something that essentially does challenge my mortality, that in itself may have a further impact 
in terms of reduce increasing anxiety and reducing mood. Do you find yourself occasionally having to deliver kind of a stiff talking to, to some of your patients? Yes, then? I do. I do. Sometimes I, I absolutely do. And I don't shirk away from that. I suppose if if many of my patients would definitely call me probably straight. While I would like to think that I'm soft enough, um, I certainly where where they need to hear some information and directly, I, I wouldn't hide from that. Like how? Well, if I just thought that their disease was doing fine and that they needed to just move on now and enjoy things, I would say that that is what should happen. And count your blessings, as it were. Well, it's hard to say count your blessings to somebody who's fighting an incurable disease. But I do think that, you know, worrying never cured anything. And unfortunately, all of us are going to die at some point. And therefore, if something's under control and I'm saying that, look, this is looking really good and all the evidence suggests that if your disease is this under control for that long, the likelihood is you may have a full lifespan. Well, then you need to get out and enjoy life. Do you find yourself being surprised from time to time by how well people do uh, and how well they move on from a situation that you might have considered to be pretty hopeless? And you mean psychologically? Psychologically and medically. Oh, medically. I mean, I'm not surprised because we have new things coming out all of the time. We have new agents. You know, we go to large international cancer conferences, three to four monthly, depending what cancer type you're in. Now we're seeing regularly standing ovations for the type of impacts on survival that we're having with the drugs that we give. So medically, I'm not a bit surprised. And I really think in certain disease types, particularly breast cancer, we're getting closer and closer and closer to the cure of certain subtypes. I suppose what's really exciting from being involved in cancer research is the fact that we are moving away from this whole aspect of breast cancer equals breast cancer equals breast cancer into, you know, this cancer needs to be dealt with specifically this way versus this other cancer has a much better outcome and therefore that does not require chemotherapy. We've developed a much more significant personalised approach in terms of the management of these cancers. And is it fair to say that your treatment uh, for cancer is much more focused now than it used to be? In other words, you can more easily identify who will and who won't benefit, say, from chemo. Yes, and I think probably where we have made the biggest inroads in that regard is in the whole area of what's called ER positive HER2 negative breast cancer, which is a hormone sensitive HER2 negative one, which counts for about 70% of our breast cancers. So we, um, I was part of the group that would have fought hard to get access to a test called the Oncotype DX, which is a gene expression profile. And essentially, when I was in the States in 2006, we were using this routinely on people to say that you don't need chemo versus you do need chemo. And then I came back to Ireland in 2006 and it was like going back into the dark ages. We're like going, OK, do you need treatment? Do you not need treatment? And there was a huge overtreatment of women. And a group of us would have fought hard to access this gene profiling tool. And I've done a lot of the analysis of the impact of that tool now in Irish populations. And what I am certainly delighted to say is we are seeing about a 60 to 70 percent reduction in chemotherapy administration in that patient group. Phenomenal. You mentioned that you'd spent three years, I think it was, at the NCI. You mentioned it in the context of Keelan, uh, the National Cancer Institute, Institute in, yeah. in the USA. Yes. That was probably a shorter period than you might have gone out there expecting to spend. Is that right? Well, the difficulty was 9-11 had happened. And my husband, who was not my husband at the time, he was a boyfriend, but I knew him for a long time. He ha- was working, he was a mechanical engineer that worked with airline regulation. And all of a sudden, everything closed down in the States after 9-11. So we were looking, I could no longer get him a visa. So I said, now, 
John. I'll see you in three years. I'm definitely coming back to get a job, which was completely naive because people had gone over to the States and had maybe come back six years later, seven years later, etc. But honestly, I was absolutely sure I was going to be back. So we commuted for that three years. My juniors look at me and they go, they can't just believe that I would do something like that. Worked with a woman called Sandra Swain, who was you know, one of the key leaders in breast cancer research at the time. And that was one of the most phenomenal experiences I've ever had. How important for you and more importantly, I suppose, for the women primarily involved, but men as well, was the development of the National Cancer Strategy. We had, um, I think, Professor Tom Keane came from Canada to reorganise the whole thing. Now, where did you fit into all that? Yeah, so if if you remember, that strategy at the time was a surgical strategy. It wasn't really about chemotherapy administration. We were trying to make sure that cancers were being done by surgeons that had adequate numbers to make sure that they were doing it to the best level that they could. And the establishment of those cancer centres started the discussion of them in 2008. I was just back from the States two years, which was unsettling, I can tell you, because I had spent all this time at the National Cancer Institute. I came back to treat people with breast cancer. And the first thing that I was hearing within 24 months was, well, breast cancer isn't going to be happening in Tala Hospital. And I was kind of going to myself, well, where am I going to treat these women? And of course, as with everything, you know, the whole focus at that time was on the surgical side and not where, not about the medical oncology side. So they were saying, oh, people will come back out and they'll get treated in Tala. But of course, we knew that that wasn't going to be the way. I mean, if you came into Vincent's today, you establish a relationship with your surgeon in Vincent's, you want to receive your treatment in Vincent's. You have a familiarity with that place. So we had to fight long and hard to get reallocated. Um, and at that time then, um, myself and Ray McDermott, who again has, is the chair of Cancer Trials Ireland, an incredible man, the two of us moved to Vincent's. And as I said, for me, that was massive because now I was moving from 150 breast cancers a year to 800 breast cancers a year. And I just loved my job and met these incredible people who had been developing the cancer services both nationally and also within Vincent's. People such as Anne O'Doherty, who who would have driven, you know, the reestablishment of these cancer centres to ensure the best outcome for breast cancer patients. And you've also got, I think it's got one of the big breast check centres there on on the campus as well. And how important then has breast check been in helping the female public to deal with this and to, if you like, get diagnosed in in the shortest time possible. Yes. So I think we have a body of work to do with breast check. I think that we now see lower levels of uptake of first mammogram, um, despite the fact that we had COVID and we had some delays in terms of the screening programme over that period. We need to again encourage women to engage in breast check. Now, women are very good at engaging in their health, but there's no question that catching these cancers early is important in terms of how patients do. So we really feel very strongly that the time to engage in breast cancer screening is as early as possible, which is currently starting at 50. At 50. And should it go, should that age uh, threshold be lowered? Yeah. So the issue with any screening programme is part of it is that it has to be cost effective. And of course, we know the cancer is a disease of increasing age. So it's while we get a lot of publicity for the cancers that are diagnosed in women who are under 50 the vast majority, 75%, are over 50. So in certain institutions or certain countries, there are policies to start breast screening at 40 and some at 45. I think it's something that is continually investigated here. I would support it, 
but I'm not involved in the development of that policy at the moment. You mentioned COVID and how the uptake wasn't as strong as it previously had been with, with breast check. And I think they, in the aftermath of that, there was something like a 10% reduction in cancer diagnosis. So have we caught up yet with that lag? So we are working furiously to catch up with that lag. Right now, the current interval between the breast check mammograms is less than three years, but greater than two years. The target is to make it a two year gap. We are definitely making progress. But again, this requires a lot of resources. I mean, is this something that's going to take a few more years then before it's... It undoubtedly is going to take a few more years. Tell me a bit more, Janice, about the kind of research that you're engaged in then along with colleagues. And presumably you're still, you you mentioned going to international conferences and so forth. You're still engaged or in contact with the the people in in the United States in the National Cancer Institute. Yeah, and, and that engagement when I was in the National Cancer Institute was really instrumental in terms of networking opportunities with different cooperative groups, which have access to large international trials. And for me, that was probably one of the most important things when I moved back. I wanted to ensure that we had access to as many of these targeted approaches for our Irish women, because we do have a delay in accessing drugs in this country. It is something that needs to be tackled. But once we have access to the clinical trials, it gives us access to drugs that we may not necessarily be able to get from the public purse as things stand. So I'm involved in a lot of research. Vincent's would be one of the larger research centres. We have a huge focus on breast cancer. We will collaborate with many groups from the States, some from Australia, some from uh, mainland Europe. Um, And in addition to that, we do direct industry trials where we, let's say maybe Vincent's maybe the standalone um, centre in Ireland to have access to a drug that's looking really promising. So for me, that's what gets me up in the morning, making sure the many new women that I will find that have a breast cancer diagnosis to make sure that they have access to drugs that look like it may make them do better going to the future. Do you have much trouble, I'd imagine, not from what you're saying, in, in, in persuading, if that's the right word, your patients to take part in trials? I mean, they would be wondering, you know, is this going to do me any good? Could it do me more harm than good? Yeah, and I think we've really tried to tackle that over time because... You're right. When somebody participates in a clinical trial, what we're using are drugs that, one, look better than something else in other scenarios. So what we're saying, however, to patients is, you're right, this may be better. This may be exactly the same as what we would give standardly. And there is a possibility that you may have more toxicity ratio to this drug and you may do worse. So people go on faith. We obviously have a very frank conversation about what the role of clinical trial is, what we may achieve. I mean, for anybody who takes part in a clinical trial, the understanding is that this may not help you, but it will help your daughter or your granddaughter going into the future. How far away are we from having the kind of vaccines? I mean, they're there already in the case of, say, cervical cancer that will if you like, eliminate them if they're taken by sufficient numbers of people, you know, in sufficient time. Yes. Yeah, so I think vaccine development has been ongoing in cancer for many decades at this time. And a lot of the 
older stuff had not resulted in any improved outcomes. These would have been trials we would have done in the Cancer Institute also. Things are changing and I think even COVID vaccination has changed our ability to be able to package these type of proteins in vaccines. But it's complex, right? Because you're trying to develop a vaccine that prevents all cancers. And of course, there's different proteins involved in all different cancer types. So how do you get all those bits into one vaccine? Um, but I've no doubt that we are going to achieve something like that. It for may, breast cancer? I think for, for many different types of cancer and cancer development in general. That's what we're moving towards. Do you expect to see it happening in your own career? I think it'll be unlikely that it's going to happen. I'm now 18 years back from the States. I have another 15 years to go. I think it would be a stretch to think maybe at that level by then. However, maybe it will. How important and how valuable will artificial intelligence or is artificial intelligence in getting the more focused treatments? I think that it is something that as medics we were maybe anxious about in the past. But I think in terms of its ability to interrogate tumours, look at what genes are upregulated, what genes are downregulated, and then potentially identifying the targets for those, I think it's going to be really helpful. Lung cancer is something that you worked with uh, at an earlier stage in your career. Is it fair to say with all the warnings about cigarette smoking particularly, uh, and you don't have to be a smoker to get lung cancer, obviously, but uh, it does contribute, no doubt about that. But is it something that's less of a concern for the health system and for the population generally now? Lung cancer? Oh, no. We still have significant amounts of lung cancer. It is still a significant focus, I think. But less than before? Well, we're having less smoking related lung cancer, but we're definitely seeing a rise in non-smoking lung cancer. And why is that? And those non-smoking lung cancers can happen in significant proportions in our younger patients, even under 40. The thing that is associated with those type of lung cancers is they often carry a defect, which can be exploited with variety of different forms of oral tablets now. So this is a time of explosion of research for lung cancer. In the past, we would have been about the outcomes of these patients. You got chemotherapy for a while. It maybe extended your outcome for three to four months. We now have people on oral drugs that are living six, seven, eight, nine, ten years with something that would have been seen as a fatal diagnosis where you died within a year. So there is exponential amounts of discoveries happening within lung cancer. And for those who are diagnosed with that at the moment, I would say to them, there is a huge amount of hope um, because in the past they would have been met with a lot of negative opinion. You obviously have your uh, your training, your expertise, uh, your ingenuity, as have your colleagues. But Dr. Google is there as well uh, to assist. Uh, well, is it to assist patients? I mean, is, is he or she, depending on the gender one assigns uh, to Dr. Google, a hindrance or a help? Well, I always say to people that I have no issue with Google, but come talk to me first. Let's lay out a treatment plan because it's very overwhelming. If you put in something, it's like if you tomorrow had something on your leg, the first thing that comes up is cancer, right? So if you put in, let's say, we will have a cohort of patients who are diagnosed with triple negative breast cancer, which is one of the more aggressive forms of breast cancer. Cancer about 12% of the breast cancer we see in Ireland. If you put that in, all the most horrendous stuff comes up. So what I say to people is, look, let's go through your characteristics. Let's go through your treatment plan. Let's go through the objectives of this treatment. And then when you know exactly where you stand, 
then if you want to go into Google, you have a very specific niche area that you're looking at. This is your treatment plan. Look it up. See what the forums have said about the impact of those treatments. Go into, let's say, the reputed sites like Irish Cancer Society, Macmillan, etc. And look at those drugs and the impacts they have. But going into the big black hole of Dr. Google, honestly, I don't think that's helpful. Attitude must be important, though, from what you were saying earlier as well. Attitudes from patients? Yeah, I think so. I think the most helpful thing is if you have a personality that can go with the flow. Because at the end of the day, our body is not like our career. We can't just tell it which way it's going to go. We don't have the type of control that we do in other scenarios. So if, let's say, I start treatment today and you have low white cell counts and then your treatment needs to be delayed, for me, I'll need to manage that person's reaction. Some people go, Janice, whatever you say, you're the boss, you know what you're doing. Others will just fret that the delay in that is going to make a cancer cell grow some more. Why can't I just go ahead and have that treatment? Really, I'm just happy to sit at home and lie in the bed if that's what happens. So so I think if you're a person who can just say, I'm going to put myself in the hands of the doctor, and that requires a lot of trust, right? You have to trust the person you're with. I think you will navigate that treatment so much better. Their attitude is important, but presumably yours as well. I mean, you've got to go in there and in one sense, you've got to perform for them. I mean, when you meet them either individually or collectively. Well, everything is down to the type of personality you have. I mean, the one thing I would say about myself and what my siblings tell me on a regular basis, I'm very sure. So whenever I make my decision, I never double think about that. My, my treatment plan is my treatment plan. I believe it is the best thing that they can do and then move on. I think people respond well to that because if they had a dithery doctor who says, oh, maybe we should do this or no, come in the next day and change the plan totally. That is very disconcerting for people. So from my point of view, I am confident about the treatment plan. I know this job like the back of my hand. I love it. I have no problem being challenged with questions, whether it be from Dr. Google or an oncologist relative who's living over in America who wants to know what's going on. You must spend a fair amount of time, though, keeping up to speed with everything that's happening by way of research developments. Constant, constant. Does that take a lot of your time? Huge. So nighttime reading, daytime reading. Um, data coming out every week from multiple sources. Some are more important than others, but I love that. I mean, that's what gets me up in the morning and makes sure that I am the best oncologist that I can be. Prevention, as they say, is obviously better than cure always uh, is the case. What about people's lifestyle? I mean, increasingly, okay, it's kind of a given now that smoking is just an absolute no-no. Mm. But for instance, alcohol seems to be uh, looming ever ever larger on the, on the horizon, as it were, as a contributory or potentially contributory factor to cancer. Yeah, and I think if I, there was anything I could tell the government, I think we need some national campaigns about this because there is no question that our cancer is increasing. And there is no doubt as to why that is happening. And the three reproducibles are one, we are too sedentary, so we need to get moving. And international guidelines will recommend that we do 30 minutes brisk walk or the equivalent every day. So find something you love and do it. Number two, we're getting larger. And it's just not acceptable. I know we are going into a phase where body image and not criticising, etc. And it's not about that, but it's back to health. So getting larger is not good for us. It promotes cancer growth. And then number three, unfortunately, and the one that makes me very unpopular is the Alcohol Association. And it's clear, Sean, the alcohol intake is associated with 
pro-cancer growth. We drink too much in Ireland. We have very little understanding of what is a unit. Um, you probably saw there recently, Canada had come out recently saying we should be having less than two units a week, which is the equivalent of an Irish glass of wine. International guidelines will vary country to country. Generally, as a rule of thumb, it's 10 to 12 units per week. A bottle of wine, depending on the alcohol intake, is eight to 10 units. So again, I talk to women Mainly, I shouldn't say women only because I talk to some men too who have male breast cancer. I'm primarily breast cancer now. And they are shocked to the core when I tell them that three to four bottles of wine a week is between 24 and 32 units of alcohol a week. Um, and, and, and I don't tell people to become teetotalers because you will have plenty of people within the internet who will tell you you shouldn't have another morsel of it. But there's no question that higher intake is associated with higher risk. So higher risk of developing cancer, higher risk of having a recurrence of cancer. So while it is difficult, it is part of my job to educate people. And would part of your treatment as well be just that encouragement on the on the physical side to people to, to lose weight if they can and to get more exercise? Yeah. And I suppose this is something that would be different from the past because in the past it was like, oh, mind yourself. As an Irish community, we're great. You know, we come in with piles of rubbish and we leave it in the house and then people have to eat it, cream cakes and apple tarts and pre-made lasagnas and all the rest, which is wonderful. But the problem and then told to sit down and mind yourself. But really, any of my poor patients, when they meet me, I'm saying, look, your job is now out every day for 30 minutes. And really, if you can come out of this treatment the same weight as you come in, you're ahead of the game. Um, and they will hear me talking about trying to keep your protein up, your vegetables up and trying to keep your carbohydrate down. Now, I'm not saying zero carbohydrate because I've had some people come back to me saying their dietitian was incensed that I said low carbohydrate. But as women, unless we're doing a lot of exercise, we do we do um, store that as fat. So Therefore, I would talk about kind of dietary interventions as part of that consultation. When you look back at your, your own career and your family background as well, and also the fact that your father died at such a young age, is it possible that, for instance, there's treatment available now that would have kept him alive or maybe even cured him? Yeah. So I think of that regularly. I suppose two things. The death of my father taught me two important things. One is that when you saw this guy was 6'2", big man, worked like a dog. And when you see what he became by the end and the impact that that cancer in itself physically had on him, he can take anyone out. It also gave me great insight to the fact that when people come into the day ward to get their treatment, they are their best selves. So they are, they have their makeup on, my women may have their lipstick on and they're out for the day to tell me that they look good and they're going to be having their treatment. Whereas my memory of my father vomiting into the sink when he was on treatment for stomach cancer is very real. So I know that I only get part of the picture when we're in the day ward on that day. So that gives gives me a very important message as I manage people day to day. And then the second thing I think about him in terms of the fact that even the treatment of gastric cancer has come on a good bit. And there's no question that the treatments where he diagnosed today would be different than what he would have received. Would he have been having a likelihood, greater likelihood of cure? I don't think so because I think he ignored things for a while and I think he had advanced disease when he was diagnosed. But in terms of new agents coming out, I think they could have given us more time. 
are men still like that? They just, you know, are slow to go if they feel or sense there's something wrong. And I mean, they might be ignoring evidence that's right in front of them when they go to the loo or whatever. Yeah, I think it's very variable. I think that generation were poor, right? I think, let's say my husband's generation would be better about going to the doctor and there's much more campaigns out there in terms of encouraging people to engage in their health and, you know, male celebrities telling you you should do that and taking the shame out of it. So I think that's been really helpful. And I think this generation, you know, are in a lot of ways focused on their health, drinking water, eating well. So so I'm very hopeful for males looking after themselves better now because the women traditionally have always been good. And you mentioned about keeping up appearances literally when they come to see you. And that's, I suppose, part of the relationship. I mean, do you... Do you joke or maybe engage in banter at least with your patients about, you know, the effort they're making when they're coming into you? Oh, we have great relationships. I mean, you know, there's people who are just very nervous when they come into the day ward and they just want to get put the head down and get through the day. But I have many wonderful relationships with many of my patients. And, you know, I suppose the thing that surprises them, if you went into Vincent's day ward they all look like you and me, right? I think we expect that you go in there and people are all going to look really odd and really thin and really unwell. They are just like you and me. And they're surprised when they start treatment that they start making relationships with the person that's sitting beside them that may or may not be going through the same treatment or the same disease and and develop many lifelong relationships where they connect with one another when they, when they leave my day ward. Are there things that we should and shouldn't say to people who... Uh, hear the bad news that they've got cancer. I mean, I saw something recently where, you know, you should never say to somebody, can I try on your wig? Um, <laughs> I don't know if that's something that you would agree with. Um, I, but talk to me about some of the do- of those do's and don'ts. I think the big thing that people will say is the most irritating is that people come up to somebody who's just diagnosed with cancer and then immediately launch into a story how their mother died or how their neighbour died. And they... They may have like an entirely curable situation and a lot of people don't want to gauge with that. And for a lot of people, they say, geez, Janice, I wish I just hadn't told anyone. And let me tell you tomorrow, if I was diagnosed with cancer, I probably wouldn't tell anyone outside of my immediate family, people who needed to know, because I definitely think there is a societal response to people who are diagnosed with cancer and it's not helpful for people in the main. What's the best thing we can say to people? I think the best thing we can say is I'll be here for you if you need anything. I think for mothers who have children, can I pick up your son from Gaelic? You know, is there anything I can do? Could I bring you into treatment or bring you out of treatment? Do you need help this week? I I think it's just helpful suggestions and positivity. Can I just say thank you so much, uh, Professor Janice Walsh, and uh, the very best to you and your patients in your time ahead. Thank you, Sean. To hear more in this series, go to rte.ie forward slash podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.